You are listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about books set where you were born and books by Black authors. So first up, I'll interview Monica West about her debut novel, Revival Season, which follows a Black evangelical family over the course of a summer that changes all of their lives. And then I talk to Brittany Ackerman, the author of the book, The Britneys, which follows a series of 14-year-old girls coming of age in Florida, which just so happens to be where I was born. Then we'll chat a little bit more about books set where we were born and how you decide exactly what counts as set where you were born. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. A little bit about myself. I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and I currently live in Oakland, California. I teach high school English. I started revival season in 2012. A little bit about the book is it's a, um, a story of a 15-year-old girl named Miriam Horton who suffers a crisis of faith after witnessing a p- pretty brutal act that her father does. And about the summer that happens afterwards and all the things that kind of unfold for her or change her understanding of the world after that event. So one of the things I really loved about the book is the way that it honors the character's faith sort of without simplifying it. So for the characters, faith healing is a big part of the story. And for Miriam, there's no question that faith healing is real, sort of even in her crisis of faith, you know, she believes that it can happen, even if it, if it's not always working. So I'm curious what shaped your approach to writing about faith and doubt. Yeah, Miriam, even in her crisis, even in her real definitive moments of, of, of real doubt about her dad, about his powers, about her powers. I think that because it just shaped her, uh, she just never really questioned it. And even her questioning still didn't have the possibility that it didn't exist or that it wasn't real. Her questioning never kind of went to that place. Why I wrote about faith and doubt was that Number one, it's such a tricky, tricky topic to write about. And I thought it'd be really interesting to work through because I don't read books about this type of subject because it's a taboo subject. Faith and religion, sort of organized religion, is not something that's treated sort of seriously mm-hmm. very yeah. often in yeah. fiction. And I'm, I'm curious about the revival scene and sort of the revival circuit that the family goes on and how you wrote those scenes. Did you go to revivals? Did you like, what did your research look yeah, like? Yeah. So I have been to revivals and then also did a ton of research as well. And they're, they're definitely a thing that still happens, not in the ways that it happened in the past, but, um, I was interested in this idea that Miriam's family, the Hortons just feel really out of time like throwbacks to a different era. And so the idea of bringing back something that feels way older or that has an older tradition felt really in line with who this family is and what they do and what they're about. And it just felt really natural for them to do something that feels really kind of old fashioned traditional. And so uh, I did a ton of research about historical revivals, about the purposes of them, about the way that the ways that denominations use them. And then my own experience with um, some revivals to kind of put those scenes in there. They kind of galvanized faith or belief. I think that's probably the best way to think about it. It's this kind of moment of frenzy and all the, all these emotions kind of on display in this, in this really public way. And it felt like such a really rich place for Miriam to have questions about something, but in a place that's really public, not just for her and her family, but also that's their family's business too, in some ways, which feels a little icky to say, but I felt like the revival setting was the perfect place for her to explore something that feels like a really private conversation about doubt and belief, but that she would explore that in a place where there are a lot of people there and her dad's kind of on stage and she sees him like a stranger and yet also very intimately knows what these events are and what they're like and what they're for. And so it just felt like a really rich, fertile area for me to pretty go deeply into thinking about. So you talked just a little bit about uh, Miriam's Mm -hmm. father there. And that relationship was so interesting to me because it's so complex. You know, she, she deeply admires him, especially at the beginning of the book. She's also afraid Mm -hmm. of him and she kind of resents Mm -hmm. him. You know, he's even at the beginning when, when she's not 
she's sort of just getting into this crisis of faith, she, she resents that she's being sort of held out. You know, her brother Caleb is invited in. He's sort of the natural mm-hmm. successor for her dad, even though she has this deep faith and she's very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. The relationship between her and her father is so deeply integrated with her own faith. And I'm curious about how that relationship sort of reflects patriarchal systems in religious communities in general or evangelical communities in general and how it's unique to this particular pair of characters. Yeah. There's this interesting way that Miriam knows her father in a very almost superficial way. She knows him really well in the sense that she's a, she's an observer. And so she watches everything, everything he does, what he says, his gestures. Um, so she knows everything about the revival sermons, everything about the way he heals. She's just such a watcher. So she knows him in that way. And she's terrified of him. I think that when she watches him, there, there is, there's love there initially, but there's the, the book begins with her having witnessed something pretty horrific the year before that she can't shake. And so had I started the book maybe two years prior, I think there would have been much more love and admiration for him and less fear. And that is kind of Mm -hmm. morphed into, I don't, I'm really unsure of who my dad is and what my dad can do. And then that, that whole, that whole thought spirals all the way through the rest of the book, which is, Oh, I've seen him do things now. Um, I want to believe that he's good. I want to believe that he is righteous and just, I want to believe that he is holy and I kind of can't anymore. And then the ways that she's overlooked from the beginning, she is so devout and she's so loyal and she's so dutiful and she's connected to the faith in such a way. And that doesn't matter to the dad at all. Um, I think so that for me feels like it mimics the patriarchal structure in evangelicalism and Christianity. The idea of a woman or a girl in her case, but, you know, soon to be a woman taking the helm of something that she knows so well, not even being a consideration. Right. And I think that the connection kind of, I was thinking about the name, you know, the name Miriam, and then this idea of kind of how Miriam is overshadowed by Moses biblically and how for her, she knows pretty deeply early on that she will never be invited into the study. Um, Her dad will never nurture the, you know, the leadership in her that's there and the way that he'll do it in Caleb, who doesn't, doesn't seem as interested in it as Miriam does. And it just to Mm -hmm. me echoes a ton of that patriarchal dynamic where you can be the best at this and in this structure and in this context and in this, you know, system, if you're not male, it doesn't matter. Um, And so that's, I think one of the huge things that Miriam's grappling with this idea of, the fear of her dad, the nascent belief that she's developing in herself, the doubt that's growing in her about her dad, and then this profound sense of rejection, this, you will never see me for who I am. You will never see me in my fullest. And what, how frustrating that feels to her to be on the, the flip end of that. But it does seem to echo so many things in evangelical Christianity and Christianity in general, where, well, you're not male, so you can do things, but just not the things that I do. You can do some other things. You can lead a, you know, group of women to do something. You can do some other things that to them feel frivolous, but Miriam doesn't want that. And, um, she has to kind of really grapple with that. She's, she's, she's fighting against a big system and not just her dad. Yeah. I I think I was thinking about sort of power Mm -hmm. and the way that that people sort of wield power in the novel. And I think Mrs. Cade Mm -hmm. is a really fascinating Mm -hmm. character in terms of like the the way that she kind of wields power through these back channels that are open Mm -hmm. to her as a woman. Can you talk sort of about that character and about power and gender? The ways that people have access to power in the book, the gendered ways that people have access to power. And Mrs. Cade plays the, the role that is, that is given to her. She's a midwife and uses that to her and you know in her favor to basically gain access to this family in ways that no one else outside of the family really can she's not in those closed door rooms where the men are talking 
but she's adjacent and she's always around and she was a you know believer in Samuel initially. And so she knows the family really well. She knows Samuel well and is really skeptical, especially after she delivers Isaac and realizes the extent to which, oh, this is bad. I mean, I think knowing it and the fact that it wasn't a surprise to her was a pretty clear thing that Mrs. Cade wasn't shocked at what was happening and what was going on behind closed doors. And she knew the reasons why. So I, I really liked playing with that sense of power for her. And then similarly, Miriam's trying to kind of negotiate and navigate that power. Miriam watching Mrs. Cade wield power and what she's able to do. I think she recognizes Mrs. Cade's status and the ways that she does have access to power in those channels and what that looks like for her. Yeah. I just, I love that character. And, Almost kind of the flip side of it is Joanne yeah. Ma, who's uh, Miriam's mother, who's also, I think, just a fascinating character. In some ways, she's sort of the one, the only one of them who who might be able or still sort of maintains this connection to the sort of secular yeah. world, the rest of the world that the, that the children are so isolated yeah. from. And she she sort of shares that with Miriam, you know, through literature and a little bit through music. She's, she's got a little bit of an escape Mm -hmm. route if she Mm -hmm. wants one. And yet she, she doesn't seem to have any power. She does, or she doesn't, she doesn't choose to wield any power or very rarely does she. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that character and sort of the inspiration for her and her role. Sure. For Joanne, she knows that her life before Samuel with her dad and her upbringing and the violence that she saw. Once she came over to Samuel, she kind of just came all the way in. She was so thirsty and hungry for something that felt real and different. And there's a part in the book Mm -hmm. when I explore this idea that Miriam thinks about for Joanne, what it was like to kind of find God and find a husband at the same time. And that this idea Mm -hmm. that she didn't separate Samuel from God in these ways, I think Samuel needed. He loves the fact that she worships him and he needs Mm -hmm. that. And she has her doubts, but she's choosing to stay. And I grappled with that the whole way through, which is why does she? And the night when she almost doesn't, right? The night when she leaves or tries to leave and Miriam catches her. I think she just feels so profoundly responsible for her family and her role in what has gotten so bad. You know, she's not innocent Mm -hmm. in in a lot of those things. And so I feel like there's fear in her. She's also an abused woman. She's an abused wife. And Miriam wants her to be stronger. And Miriam wants her Mm -hmm. to stand up. And Miriam wants her to act on power. And they have these really small rebellions, these moments of, you know, listening to music that's secular and dancing in ways that the father wouldn't like. These moments I feel really transgressive for them. But beyond that, I think... Joanne, I don't know if she feels like she doesn't feel like she can leave or she doesn't want to leave, but I think Samuel's kind of done a number on her in the sense that she feels, Mm -hmm. what would she do without him, right? Mm -hmm. What would her life be? She met him when she was a teenager and then she just got wrapped all the way up in his life. So what does that mean for her to then not be a wife? What would it mean for her to start over with her kids? And I think that she can't even begin to think that. She grapples with all those things, and yet there's a sense that she's going to stay. And it's sad, but she's going to stay. And she knows who she's married to, and she's going to stay. The ending was the hardest thing in the world to write. And I'd written, I don't know, 15, 20 endings. And when I wrote this one, I said, oh, that's it. There it is. I felt it. The the open-endedness of it, I think, is really frustrating some people. But also, for me, felt like it fit with the book in the sense that I, I... I don't give you answers about whether or not these healings are real. You decide what you believe about Miriam's gift. You decide what you believe about what the father can and can't do, that that it's real at all, or if it's just a show. Yeah. I mean, I I like an ambiguous ending in general, because I think like that's how life is, right? Like it's very rare that we get like this neat, tidy package. But I think you're right. Like to me, it just works so well because the whole novel is about like faith and doubt and not having the easy answers. And so it puts, it puts the reader in that position of like, okay, you have the information that you have and now you, you Mm -hmm. have to decide Mm -hmm. also. I'm wondering if your work, 
spending time with high schoolers informed Miriam's character at all because she feels like such a teenager. <laughs> like so much of what she's going through is about just that normal coming of age yeah. stuff. I've been a high school English teacher for 13 years. It's so funny that, you know, I live in the adult world, but I spend the majority of my time with 14 and 15 year olds. And so I understand them pretty well, even when I don't, even when I don't understand them, I still kind of get them. Yes. So yeah, a lot of my Miriam stuff came from the fact that I work really closely with people her age. And what I love about that age is that it is, everything is possibility. Um, It's the age at which for kids and the kids I teach, it's the age in which you're trying to differentiate yourself from your parents and your family, where you understand some things about the world, you think some things are true, where you're deciding your own truth and your own values mm-hmm. and your own beliefs and the things that matter to you. And you are just hoping that to just kind of feel feel that out. And so for Miriam, that this whole idea of this, you know, kind of coming into this power, this understanding of herself feels very much in line with what I see 15 year olds going through all the time with politically, ideologically, religiously, um, emotionally. Um, and so that felt really connected to my experiences with, with high schoolers. And the other thing is the part where you decide to differentiate yourselves from your parents and to see them as fallible. And um, mm-hmm. when you first see your parents as people, it is a pretty humbling is probably the wrong word, um, but it's a pretty stark moment when you see their mistakes and you see that they aren't perfect. And so you differentiate yourselves from your parents and you, and you see them as mortal and as messy and as, um, yeah, as people. And for Miriam, it is huge for her to see her mom and her dad. I mean, she saw, she saw it with her dad first. I think she, her belief in her mom is kind of shattered over the course of, of, of the book. Um, mm-hmm. Her belief in her dad was shattered the previous summer and she still wanted to hold on to hope, but they begin the survival season with Miriam in a place of doubt. And she, then she becomes hopeful after the first survival. And then that hope is dashed pretty quickly after. And, um, yeah, I just feel so in line with what I, so I watch my kids go through every single day. Um, mm-hmm. and it's also, and then it's also the balancing act between devotion to them and to what they believe and to the comforts of how you were raised and doubt about did, did they do the right thing with me? And did I, you know, what could have been different about how they treated me or how they loved me or how, um, they dealt with me. And so all that stuff feels really present for Miriam, which, which is, on every, on every scale with every kid I've ever worked with in some form. Um, it's there. Mm-hmm. So that definitely teaching high school has definitely informed Miriam's age and her character. And are you working on a new novel? I now? am. It's about this, this spiritual leader. He's kind of a cult leader. He is this leader of this group called the way he converts only women. He marries them as he pulls them more and more away from kind of their life. They're dealing with this idea of loyalty to him and what they believe him to be as they're watching him become something different and someone different. So I tell the book from the perspective of three of his wives and what they see and why they stay, their complicity and what he's doing and what he's done. Just kind of this idea of watching this, this person that they've made a God fall and how they all respond to it. Well, that sounds fascinating. I would love to read it. And then our last question, we always ask, what are you reading now? There's a book by this author, Kelsey McKinney, called God Spare the Girls. She writes from the perspective of like these white Southern Baptists, it's a very different evangelical community than the black family that I write about. Really interestingly connected in some ways about the fall of a leader. So I'm reading mm-hmm. that one and enjoying that. And then after that, someone compared revival season to 
to Amanda Ngozi Adichie's Purple Hibiscus, which I've never read. And so I, that's, that's on deck after God Spare the Girls. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really fun thank to talk so to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to talk to you also. My name is Brittany Ackerman, and I am an author. I'm the author of The Brittany's. I am also a teacher at a performing arts school. I teach everything from English comp to creative writing to applied logic and critical thinking, uh, archetypal psychology, uh, literature classes, just everything, <laughs> anything and everything that involves writing and discussion. The Brittany's is your debut novel, but your first published book was a memoir. And I'm curious if the process of self-excavation and interrogation, if you came across like old diaries or yearbooks that helped you get into the headspace to write from this character's perspective. I don't have any of that stuff anymore. Like it got lost to, you know, transferring over computers. So I really just had these memories and experience to go off of. And I wasn't trying so much, you know, because this is fiction, um, the novel, and I wasn't trying to get everything right and you know, make everything perfect. I just kind of wanted to capture the feeling of that time and the kind of quiet anxiety. You know, I really did have five friends in my group, in my friend group named Brittany, but we didn't go on these kind of adventures and misadventures. It was kind of more just, you know, we all knew each other and, you know, sometimes we would all hang out together, but it wasn't like it is in the book. Um, and I kind of was imagining like, well, what if it had been? And what if these relationships were everything um, and really defined that time in my life? When you're writing five young women all with the same name who exist in a, a kind of monoculture. How do you go about differentiating the characters? Were you playing with any of those kind of archetypes of, of teenage girls? I wanted each of the friends in the book to embody a different kind of archetype. Um, like there was definitely one of the friends that's more motherly. And then there's a friend that is more, you know, sexually advanced than the rest of them. Um, there's one that's definitely sillier. And then there's one that's kind of a tomboy and isn't really into boys yet. Um, and, you know, doesn't even really know what that's going to look like. And I feel like it kind of worked out in a way where all the friends kind of make up like one perfect personality, um, you know, having all the little traits here and there, but separate there, you know, that that's why they have these, uh, you know, these experiences that they go through because they kind of need each other through that time. I think Heather's is maybe like the easiest shallow comparison, but tonally it has this quality that I don't think we have a good word for, which is like a cringe of recognition. It's not exactly nostalgia, but just like being put back in your adolescent feelings like, oh yeah, it's like that. Yeah. There is like a feeling in the body that you have when you read about those experiences or you watch them in movies that it's like a visceral thing. And someone needs to like coin a term for it because because it's you're right, it's not nostalgia necessarily, but um, it's almost like whatever the opposite of catharsis is or something <laughs> like it's like a, a re you're like reliving that moment and you feel it and um, you just have all of those growing pains over again that you already experienced and maybe tried to forget about, but they're still there deep down inside. And I think even the most totally average girlhood is a kind of body horror. I'm thinking about that scene where um, she's essentially assaulted in like near the lockers. It, the way that she like is processing that. Yeah. So I had an experience similar to that one. And I remember just like, yeah, like my mom just picked me up and then I had to just go on about my day and there was no like debriefing. There was no like crying to her about it. And um, and it felt like everything that I went through had to just be like tucked away. And it's really unfortunate because 
carried a lot of that with me. Um, and it's definitely added to my anxiety and it definitely adds to the anxiety of the character in the book. It's like, then, you know, her mom is like, how was your day? And she just freaks out on her. Um, when that's a totally normal question to ask your, you know, your teenage daughter after school. Yeah. And the relationship with parents, I found to be really interesting in the book. In many ways, many of the parents are are quite absent, whether they're away for work or just like not keeping super close tabs on their kids. At the same time, they do feel like a very strong presence that the characters want to please and want to meet often high expectations, whether that's for, you know, achievement in school or having the perfect look that like appearing to be perfect is maybe more important than being perfect. In my time growing up, it was definitely the parents wanted us to do well and achieve and, you know, be the best or be the best looking or to be all of that, even though that's impossible. Um, But they didn't really want to hear about our like day to day, just kind of struggles and problems. And, you know, did we, were we in detention? Who cares? Did you, you know, did you eat? Who cares? Like, you know, it was more just let me know the big things that are happening and, you know, just like, don't, don't be too terrible. (laughs) My mom was a stay at home mom, but usually like both of the parents in the other households were working, you know, full time and weren't really around and were kind of absent. And the kids were kind of like a latchkey kid and they kind of just had free reign of the house. I mean, that's what the character of Jensen, like her parents both work and they kind of, you know, just do these crazy things, but there's no, like they don't get punished. Like no one's getting grounded. Like no one's, you know, learning any like real hard lessons here. And, you know, I don't know if it's because of where I grew up, the time I grew up in, you know, the socioeconomic climate of where I grew up in. But it's funny because that was always the house that I wanted to go to because I wanted to like get away from my mom, just kind of watching our every move. We kind of all wanted what the other person had. I mean, I know there's a a scene in the book, you know, my, my avatar is like ogling over this character's collection of perfumes and like juicy sweatsuits and jeans and, you know, just all of these things when it's like I had a closet full of my own stuff too, but it just feels new and different when it's somebody else's and especially someone that's like a little bit more popular than you and a little bit more advanced than you and just kind of seems more like they know what they're doing when you just feel like you're so lost and you feel like so not popular and not cool and not advanced. People can probably gather it from context clues that the story is set in the early aughts. So a lot of the references to specific like fashion or um, lip gloss, you know, situates it very much is the year 2004. It starts in 2003. And then there's, you know, New Year's is kind of um, in the end of the first act of the book. And then we go into 2004. So those were the years I was writing around. I'm really distilling a lot of my experience as a teenager into just that one year because I I just felt really connected to trying to do like a year in the life. Me and my editor, uh, Anna Kaufman, we really didn't want to ever say specifically what year it is. Like obviously, like you said, people can guess and people can figure it out with the references. Um, But I, I did want it to feel like almost like timeless kind of floating in that early aughts time period, but didn't really need to be tied down to a specific, a specific date, you know, and we did that together because we wanted people to say, you know, well, okay, even though if I'm a teenager now, but I still can relate to this or, well, I was actually a teen in the eighties, but I still relate to X, Y, and Z. And I wanted it to just be more nostalgic feeling than like, oh, well, you had to have been a freshman in high school in 2003. You're not going to get it. (laughs) Well, as someone who grew up very much around that time and in the setting, it's literally super close to home for me. But I do think it'll be appealing to many people beyond that like narrow age range. Um, I'm curious if you've noticed things like there's a Delia's X Dolls Kill collaboration that like early aughts fashion has already come back around for a new generation of kids. And 
how it's felt to sort of see like low rise jeans <laughs> and butterfly clips sort of back in the, the cultural consciousness. A lot, I've seen a lot of like these makeup tutorials from that time. And I just like, this is something that I feel in my body. Like when I think about how much makeup I used to put on my face, like, you know, like just tons of concealer and foundation and so much blush and, you know, and I know people do like the contouring thing now, but I honestly feel like they're trying to make themselves look natural. And the look that we were going for was not natural. Um, and I remember like I, it, there, it was really into where like, uh, these, rhinestones on your face like around your eyes and um my mom wouldn't let me do it so i would have to like like hide them in my backpack and then like put them on when i got to school and then take them off before i went home or like this baby blue eyeliner that i had from mac it was like the first thing i ever bought from mac i don't know why i picked baby blue but um you know it was a look and it's it's cool to see the next generation having fun with that stuff when for me it wasn't necessarily like fun and experimental it was more like I was doing it to try to fit in and there was like an obsessive like urgency about it like I have to have this pair of shoes and I have to wear my hair like this and I have to wear my makeup like this or else um, especially going to a private school where we had uniforms it was like accessories and makeup like that was just everything it was like all you had Um, but to see to see people playing with it now and having fun that's it's it's cool and it's cool to see them you know making these fun little videos and taking fun pictures and um it feels lighthearted, not like making fun of it which you know that would kind of feel bad but um so i'm yeah i'm all for it there's a lot of brand consciousness and like label dropping throughout the novel which I was just curious, was was that reflective of sort of your high school experience that having a specific handbag or like a Tiffany choker and those were like the talismans of teenagers at the time? I love that. I love talismans. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was like I said, it, it wasn't so much about, oh, we're like experimenting with our style and it's all fun. Like, um, it was, you have to have this or you're just out. These are just objects. And we treated them like they were, they were like a, a, you know, a meter of our, of our class or something or of our, of like our goodness in the world. <laughs> like, um, you know, like if you, if you didn't have what everyone else had, you were just left behind. And, you know, now as an adult, it's like, I don't want to have things that everybody else has. Like it's much more special to have something different and to stand out or just to, you know, not be a clone and just have the same sneakers like everyone else or the same Tiffany's choker. Um, it, it feels so much better to be an individual and to have people be like, wow, I really love your style because it's so unique, not because it's just in fashion or it's just expensive or it's just what everyone else has. Unlike the character, you moved from New York to Florida. Um, what? How old were you when that happened? And what were some of like the big differences you noticed in the culture? So I think I was like eight or nine years old. Um, and yeah, we moved to South Florida. My, my parents were kind of done with New York. Um, they couldn't stand the weather anymore. And, you know, the change of season was just really harsh. And school was also getting really, really expensive. There was so much money in New York and the the school that I, because I was in a private school in New York also. And um, like kids would get like beat up if they didn't have certain things, you know, whereas in Florida, someone will just tease you until you cry. But like in New York, it was like getting really bad. Um, and so I think my parents wanted to just pull us both out of that kind of felt like I needed a change too. And even though things were, were clicky in Florida, if it felt more accepting, still clicky and still expensive and still an emphasis on objects and belongings and status, it somehow felt more more open and more accessible that having the name Brittany and having me be in that friend group definitely helped. You know, I don't know how I would have, how I would have survived if I was just like a Lauren or something, but you know, the, the major difference was just the, the weather. I mean, like I had never dreamed that I would have a house that had a pool in the backyard where I could go swimming in December. I mean, it was, 
it was crazy. Um, and so I loved it. Like I loved like, oh, we're going to be, you know, we can go to the beach if we want. Like there's just so much more to do. It felt like, um, where now it's like as an adult, I'm like, oh, there's nothing to do in Florida. <laughs> like there's absolutely nothing to do besides go to the beach in, in South Florida where I grew up. I went on a couple dates with guys where they would take me to the beach at night, but it's like, you're not even really allowed to be at the beach at night there. Like it's, it's supposed to be closed. So you'd have to like sneak there and, you know, risk getting arrested or getting in trouble, um, getting a citation or something. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's why we like frequented malls so much or just like anything to get out of our houses. But, but it's like, that's what we had. That's what we had access to. You know, we would hang out in like a Taco Bell parking lot. You know, these like rich kids in their BMWs just like posted up, like eating a crunch wrap at two in the morning. I'm wondering how you approached like a sense of time from a teenager's perspective. One of my favorite lines uh, is when the protagonist is talking about a boy who I think is just like a few weeks or months younger. She's just turned 15 and she's like, I just, I can't even imagine dating someone who's 14. Like what a baby, you know? And her, her friend just started pushing back on that idea. She's like, but I've, I've done so much growing in the past couple weeks. <laughs> so much older now. Yeah. I mean that, that moment felt a little cringy to write too, because it's like, what now you're too good for for someone that's like two months younger than you, you know, but, um, but I think that it really feels true to that desire of these characters to like be older and to just be adults, even though you're not an adult when you're 15 or 16 or 17. I mean, I barely feel like an adult in my thirties, but, um, but there, there was this, this huge desire to just be older. And then once you get to a certain, like when you get to like that next level, like when you get to turn that next age, it's like everyone younger than you just doesn't know and they're not cool and they don't get it. And, um, and you're just, you know, above and, and beyond. Um, so I think that I tried to make the writing reflect how different even just one year in, in someone's life can change. Like how many things can really happen, even if a lot of them are just, yeah, like going to subway and like piercing your ears. Like there's, um, there's so many, so many emotions within all of that, that happen. And that's what I was really trying to encompass. And, um, that time can feel so heavy and thicker and just bigger when you're that age. Like it feels, um, it feels like every single thing that happens is so important and it's just over the top and just dramatic. Um, and then, you know, as an adult now it's like, it doesn't, you know, why was that? Why was that such a big deal to me? Like, why did I freak out about that? I don't even talk to these people anymore. They don't, you know, I don't know them. Like, so different, different perspective as you get older. And one of the style choices you make is to include these sort of glimpses into the future in italics. What made you want to include those moments and how did you decide the fate of the characters? I had like the one in there at the end with um, the narrator and Jensen and kind of a flash forward of Jensen's character. My editor, Anna, she was like, oh, you know, try this with like some of the other people in the book. Like, where did they end up? Like, where do, where do, where does the narrator imagine them? Does she know where they end up? Like, you know, let's try to give some closure on some of these characters. Um, and so I just tried to start placing them throughout teenage friendships. A lot of them are very temporary and they're not forever, but, um, I think it's still interesting to, to get to get a little glimpse or a little window into the future. And Jensen in particular, I kept waiting for like a culmination of their friendship to maybe escalate to the kiss that they don't ever really have. I think there's something about, you know, female friendships that are just so, so special. And I think what I was trying to do was just show that the lines of, of female friendship can just be so blurry and so messy, um, how complicated they can be even as adults. But I mean, in, in my experience as a teenager, um, it's like, you know, there's, it's like you, you want to be like, inseparable from that person. You, it's like, it's like your sister, but not, it's like, you're, 
you know, it's like you'd call each other. You're like, oh, this is my my best friend. This is my best girlfriend. This, you know, and it's like, but it's more than that. Like it's it's like a friendship that's like more than a friendship. Sarah Gerard reference. Um, she has a really great story called uh, BFF that's in her her book Sunshine State. And there's like a really great line about like, you know, I knew like when your your period was coming. Like that's how close we were. Um, and like what you were talking about before, like how this adolescence is like. It's a lot of like body horror stuff. Um, It's like that's, you know, to to like teach someone how to use a tampon and to practice kissing. And like it's like that is like the most intimate stuff that you can do. And you feel so close to them. Um, And so I kind of wanted it to feel a little obscure in that moment. It's like, does the narrator want to kiss her? Like, are they going to kiss? Like, does the does the friend want to kiss her? Like, I think um, I, I think that to resolve those questions. It's like, I never really got answers to those questions. So I can't really resolve them. Like, but, um, but I like the tension of it. And I like that it still feels hopeful and it still feels like they're, they're, you know, cause the other part of the book is them kind of drifting apart. And now they've even kind of drifted closer back together than maybe they were before. Like their relationship feels more, more real and more genuine um, than it did before. So give us a flash forward for you. What's the next book that you're working on? Um, so I am kind of working on a little bit of a sequel um, with uh, with the Britney. So it's pretty much going to be um, the same narrator, but different time in her life, different characters. And I'm, I'm writing about the college years. So I went to college in the Midwest. I went to Indiana University and I was in a Jewish sorority and it was my first time away from home, really. I mean, I had done like a summer program at UCLA when I was actually 15. Um, but this was like my first time moving and like my whole life was was uprooted and changed. And I'm still in like the beginning stages of it, but it's kind of another year in the life. Um, but this time they are in their junior year of college. So everyone is about to turn 21 and they're still going to frat parties, but then they're, you know, are we too old for the frats? Should we just like wait to go to bars? Um, and I'm also amping up a lot of the anxiety stuff and, um, my personal experience in, in college when I went to a, you know, a a therapist for the first time and started on medication. And I know that's like briefly touched on in one of the flashes in in the Britney's, but um, I want to make that even more of a a character and in and of itself in the next book. So that's, that's what I'm doing right now. And it's been really fun and quite hilarious to write. And um, it's, you know, it's been, it's been really wild. We always like to ask, what are you reading now or what are some recent favorites? I just finished uh, Gina Nutt's Night Rooms, which was one of my favorite nonfiction books I've ever read. It was really beautiful um, and in like a very fragmented prose style. Uh, and then I'm actually right now I'm reading Maglu, um by Otessa Moshka. And it's the only book of hers that I haven't read. And I kind of have been like saving it. And it's about this like sailor at sea that is a drunk and it's kind of crazy, but it's also kind of what I just needed to read right now. Um, and I also started um, Sarah Rose Edder's uh, The Book of X, um, which is another kind of fragmented uh, novel. Um, and it's really, really well done so far. It has that kind of like quiet anxiety that I just love in my narrators. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm loving that one, too. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was such a a great time getting to know you and getting to talk about the book. Do you have some favorite Florida set books that sort of capture your experience of growing up there? 
I would say that the person who best captures the suburban teenage angst that I had growing up in Orlando is probably John Green. Mm -hmm. So Paper Towns, the main character, lives in the Orlando suburbs. And then in Looking for Alaska, the main character leaves that location to go to a, a boarding school. And... I can completely relate to the desire to leave and go somewhere else. <laughs> and like John Green, you know, I'm I'm very lucky that my childhood was pretty normal and comfortable, but I shared his experiences of not feeling super connected to my peers or the culture there and sort of, you know, looking beyond the edges to see what what else might be on offer in the world. But I, I do think that a lot of what informs the perception of Florida is fairly cartoonish. It's like the state is being drawn by those like boardwalk caricature artists. Mm -hmm. And there are some authors who I think do a better job of describing a Florida that's more familiar to me. Are you familiar with Kristen Arnett? Mm -hmm. Her work is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, I read the first one, Mostly Dead Things, right? That's the one about the family that owns the taxidermy shop. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was hard to read because the main character is so... Um, depressed and I don't think she really realizes it uh, but it is a really like the characters are really well developed and they're really interesting and it is like a really interesting look at sort of if you're a person who's not from Florida who thinks of Florida as like beaches and palm trees it's definitely not that Florida but it is it feels like a very specific place um, yeah she's a really interesting writer she wrote this incredible essay for Lit Hub um, called The Problem with Writing About Florida. I just want to read a little bit from that. There are certain types of essays I don't like, and they all have to do with Florida. They're written by people traveling through the state or Floridians who now consider themselves former. Both of them are trying to get to the root of whatever mystical, strange forces at work in the state. I'm ready to hate whatever the author is going to say before I get to the end of the first paragraph. Florida isn't like other states, but you've heard that before. Some of what we are is just terrible. We've got a lot of crime and racist, shitty cops. People here voted overwhelmingly for Trump. I'm trying to build something new in this essay, but the honest truth is that some of the bad stereotypes are accurate. Do you need Florida man so that you're able to listen to a Florida woman talk about home? Every time you say something bad about this place, you're talking about me, my heart, my body. If Florida is a joke, then aren't I the punchline? Orlando is wet, sticky, violent. It's the place where you learn the contours of your body through sweaty shorts and tank tops. It's a damp, cold bathing suit pulled down around your ankles while you pee in a friend's bathroom at a pool party. And it goes on and on and on, but I feel like she just nails it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, too, if readers are more or less interested in hearing from people who also were born where they were born and are writing about it as a sort of like own voices perspective or want to read people who have moved to or traveled to a new location, which kind of gives a fresh set of eyes. I'm thinking about um, both Lauren Groff and the author I spoke with, Brittany Ackerman, moved from New York to Florida. And that's a pretty common path that we have a lot of people who move from New York to live in Florida at retirement or earlier. And um, I think they both do a good job of having these like sharp observations about a place in, because of the fact that like they're sort of like fish out of water, right? When they mm -hmm. arrived and there's this big cultural contrast to what they're used to. We had different experiences of the same place. And in a lot of ways, South Florida is very different from Central Florida. But um, I think what the book captured maybe even more than the location was locating the character in a place in time. Mm -hmm. So being a 14-year-old girl in the early aughts, like that's what resonated most for me about the book because the the location, the way she describes like there aren't any seasons here kind of adds to the stagnancy, I mm -hmm. guess you say. And the fact that these 
kids are being raised in what are sprawling suburbs, but still manages to feel kind of suffocating because you can only really like go as far as your bike will take you. And the, the radius of teenage life is often fairly limited. Mm-hmm. Um, that like the environment didn't play a huge role in the story itself, although it was certainly culturally familiar. Mm-hmm. Out that, did you read Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation? I did, yeah. Love the Southern Reach trilogy. Yep. Um, so if anyone has seen the film or read the book, you can probably imagine in your mind there's this territory that characters in the book are entering into that doesn't behave <laughs> normally. Uh, it's beautiful and scary and unusual. And how would you describe that region? Yeah, it's sort of um, almost like an alien planet, but it's on Earth, right? Like it, it's sort of behind this force field. And when scientists arrive there, the natural world doesn't behave as we expect the natural world to behave on Earth. And the author, Jeff Vandermeer, I believe he still lives in Florida. He certainly went to school in Gainesville. And that location was directly inspired by um, a hike he used to take in a wildlife refuge in North Florida. And it totally makes sense to me how that would get translated into fiction as this like dangerous, beautiful, unsettling place. When I was thinking about um, what what books I wanted to talk about when I think about where I where I was born, I was thinking about the way that different books kind of capture different elements of of the place that I was born. And some are more focused on the natural world and others are more interested in sort of like the human experience of living somewhere, whether that's the history of that place or sort of the contemporary situation in that place. So I grew up in Spokane, which is on the other side of Washington state. And I've talked about that on the show before, I think, but, um, it's interesting hearing you talk about Florida and sort of the different parts of Florida because Washington is really divided. There's Eastern Washington, which is on the Eastern side of the Cascades. And then there's Western Washington and they're quite different. Um, in a lot of ways, the natural world is very different. It's much drier. It's uh, higher elevation over in Eastern Washington. And then the sort of built in um, human world is very different too. And in fact, when I was thinking about books that I wanted to, that, that really sort of captured Spokane and Eastern Washington, I actually think that there are even books set in North Idaho or even into Montana that are more evocative to me of growing up in Spokane or sort of what we call the inland Northwest. So a couple of books to me that aren't technically set where I was born in Spokane, but are set nearby that I think really capture the feeling of the place. Um, The first is The Miseducation of Cameron Post. It's set in Montana and it's sort of a coming of age story about a woman. She's caught kissing her best girlfriend when she's like 11 and it's the same night that her parents die in a car crash. And those two sort of things become intertwined for the rest of the book. And she's sent to a like a conversion therapy camp that's really pretty terrible. But there are some really gorgeous scenes about summer in the inland Northwest and sort of the hot, dry, these languid days where you're a kid and you don't have a lot to do or places to be and just kind of what it is like to amble around in in the hot, dry summer that really felt like the summers that I knew in the inland Northwest. For people who are still looking for a book for this category, place is sort of a generalized term, right? Like it can be the city where you were born or if you were born in a city that or in a rural place that doesn't, that is really hard to find something set in that specific place, you know, you can go broader, you can go to the state or you can go sort of regionally. Really what I was hoping that people would get from this category is like an opportunity to kind of experience what I think is so special about reading about a place that you've lived, like a place that you remember. It's sort of like a dual 
two-pronged experience. On one hand, you get the joy of recognizing a place that you've been. And I think particularly if you're like me and you come from like some place that doesn't appear that often in popular culture, it's really exciting to read about Sokan because it, it, that, that sort of zing of familiarity you don't get very often. Um, you know, so much of the media that we consume is sort of set in in New York or it's set in LA, but to read about the place that you grew up feels really special. And then I think there's also sort of this wonderful way that reading someone else's work set in the place that you were born lets you learn about it or sort of have a different view on it as well. Um, So that's kind of what I was hoping that people would get. And whether that means that you're like, you know, reading a historical novel set where you were born, or if you're reading nonfiction about something that happened there, there's lots of different ways to approach it. Do you have any books by authors who were born and raised in Washington about Spokane? Yeah. So a couple of my favorite uh, Spokane authors, Jess Walter and Sharma Shields. I don't know if they were actually born there, but they were certainly raised there and then both left and then came back as adults and writers. And I definitely feel, again, like I think Spokane has like a little bit of a chip on its shoulder. And I say that with immense fondness with that same chip on my shoulder. Um, so I feel like a lot of hometown pride, you know, getting to see them write about the town. Um, and I think it's interesting because they do it in very different ways. Jess is a very realistic writer. Uh, his work is like mostly sort of historical fiction. You know, I've talked about The Cold Millions before, but he also has a, it's almost like a crime novel. I mean, I guess it is a crime novel called Citizen Vince that's about like a sort of low level criminal who is getting ready to vote in his first election. And it's set in 1980 in Spokane. And the the little glimpses of recognition. So this character, Vince, works at this donut shop that I used to go to, um, the sort of like legendary donut place, Donut Parade, that's now sadly closed, RIP Donut Parade. Um, that's the kind of place that you know about and you, you sort of know the, you sort of get the cultural importance of it. If you're a person who, who lived in the town, but then in cold billions, like Jess has clearly done a lot of historical research. And that was really fun because it, it meant that I got to learn about Spokane in a way that I hadn't really, um, and Sharma's books are much more, um, sort of out there. She incorporates elements of the fantastical, although I wouldn't really call them fantasy. Um, and her first book, The Sasquatch Hunter's Almanac, has big sections of it that are set in Spokane. And what I really like about those books is the way that she writes about the natural world. So Spokane is basically like high desert. Um, there's these ponderosa pines. There's all of this, you know, these sort of like desert flowers that bloom. It doesn't get a lot of rain. It's, it's at a pretty high elevation. And I think, um, the Sasquatch Hunters Almanac in particular really captures kind of like that natural world as well as like all of these sort of funny cultural things that you can only appreciate. I mean, I think they work in the book either way, but I think there's a different kind of appreciation that you bring to them. You know, when she's writing about like the parade that happens every year or, you know, like that kind of thing. But it, it, there, it's very different approaches to writing about the same place, which I think is, is an interesting experience. Are there any other books set here in, you know, like greater King County area that you'd like to suggest? One that I think is really an interesting read is called Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. And it is set in, during the um, WTO protest in 1999. So I don't know how much that was in the national news, but the World Trade Organization held a conference here in Seattle in 1999. And I think people were really becoming aware of sort of the environmental and economic impacts of globalization. So there were a ton of protests like downtown in Seattle. And this is all fictionalized, but the the protests started out peacefully and then um, became non-peaceful. And it's a fictionalized 
account of those, but it follows different characters who come. So there's like someone who's a delegate from like a small country in Southeast Asia. And he's like, it's really important that he get to this meeting. And then there are several different protesters. There are multiple police officers. So the the police ended up clashing with protesters in a way that was pretty unfortunate. And it it covers all of that. But I think if you lived in Seattle at the time, or even if you lived in, in the Northwest where it was really, really big news, you know, you'll remember enough to be really interested in it. And if you didn't live here, it's sort of an interesting look at Seattle, this long history of sort of social justice, protest, environmentalism, anarchism in the Northwest and sort of how those things met uh, at this particular moment. So that's an interesting one. I'm really curious to see what readers choose for this. I heard from a staff member who found a book written by her childhood doctor that we had in our catalog. So there's lots of there's lots of good stuff. And I hope that people will share what they read about the place that they were born with us. And how can they find books that were they were born? So probably the easiest way, because this is such a specific question, is to submit a bookmatch request. So go to kcls.org slash bookmatch and let us know that you're looking for a book set where you were born. Tell us where you were born and we will create a list of titles just for you. Another way you can get help with this request or with any kind of um, book suggestion is to go to your local library. So all of our libraries are now open for in-person service and the staff would love to help you find a book about the place that you were born or any other questions that you might have. We have a full slate of author events planned for the fall. So we've got coming up in September, we'll be talking with uh, Chef Edward Lee, who's the author of a book called Buttermilk Graffiti. That's all about cuisine all over the country. He took a road trip and talked to um, home chefs, restaurateurs, you know, people who own grocery stores. And it sort of looks at the way that different immigrant cuisine has come together to sort of form a uniquely American foodscape. So, and he'll be talking to Matt Lewis of Where You At, Matt. So I'm really excited for that one. So keep your eyes open for that on our social media channels and on our website. Yeah. And whenever possible, we will add conversations with authors to our podcast feed. So stay subscribed, look for those and happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.